from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Elaine McCreary on November 26, 2018. Elaine serves as the Baha'i member of the University of Victoria's Multi-Faith Services team of chaplains. Her spiritual journey began as a devoted Christian, expanded as a devotee of Raj Yoga, and found the Baha'i faith 25 years ago. After serving at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, She returned to Canada, where she continues to write and teach advanced life skills for global citizens. Elaine authored the book, Our Seven Families, Expanding and Enriching Our Sense of Belonging. The book explores the value of human social life, why we need human connections, drawing on her experience as a social scientist and on insights derived from a deep study of the Baha'i sacred writings, Elaine offers a fresh perspective on human affairs, revealing new hope and opportunities for action. Her analysis expands our conception of the nature and range of human relationships, stresses the link between spiritual activities and social transformation, and suggests creative practical solutions for restoring a sense of true and loving fellowship, personal well-being, and security. She weaves together the threads of a tapestry of social possibilities, identifying elements essential for the creation of a future society characterized by peace, diversity, and justice, a society that is bound to be radically different from any established in the past. We talk about the book in the interview, and I have Elaine read an excerpt as well. I started the interview by asking Elaine where she grew up, And what was religious life like growing up? I grew up in Canada in a village near our capital, Ottawa. It was referred to as the Ottawa Valley. My father was Anglican. My mother was Methodist. And in their generation, that was enough of a difference to cause something. They married and mother joined the Anglican church and she was church organist. She had actually started playing for church services when she was 14 years old and she continued till she was 74 and in the meantime my mother at the age of 73 became Baha'i but that's much farther along in the story and my father was head of the Sunday school for a while so they were focused on the church and I think they were also focused on service because they were always thinking about people in the community so I'd say It was quite nice as a childhood that I knew the big people in my life believed in God and believed in service to God until I was advanced in my teenage years. That served me very well. What was the path you took to go from that background to ultimately becoming a Baha'i? Well, I knew that God had said he would return. And I. one thing I worried about myself, if God sent a messenger in my lifetime, 
would I have the courage to go wherever he was so I could learn as much as I could? In my later teens, I became very disillusioned with the church and the quality of life that was going on there. I never doubted the reality of Jesus as a divine being, but I thought somehow the churches have lost the scent. And so I made a very clear departure in my own heart and mind. And I immediately discovered, <laughs> within a couple of years, a Raj Yoga path, which was interesting on many levels. So I don't know if you or, or your audience is familiar with different aspects of yoga, but the idea is for the individual soul, the Atman, to find its devotional connection, its unity with Brahman. It's a different cosmology from what I ended up with, but it sounded pretty good at the time. And Raj Yoga, or Royal Yoga, had four parts to it. One part is the heart. So you join with God through the heart, Bhakti Yoga. And one part is wisdom and discrimination between truth and untruth. And that's the Jnana Yoga. And then Hatha Yoga is the one that most people are familiar with because it has to do with purity of body, vegetarian diet, no alcohol, doing asanas so the body is flexible, and being able to then keep it still so you can meditate. And the fourth piece is Karma Yoga, which is right action, so that we stir up as much goodwill and limit the amount of, of ill will in the world. And so... I actually practiced this form through marriage, having three children, going back to university, getting three university degrees. I thought my whole life would be spent as a yogi because from that perspective, I could still love and be devoted to Lord Jesus. I had a, a different view of who and what he was, and I also had the life of Lord Krishna. So. In a Baha'i way of looking at things, there were two manifestations of God in my heart. And then the Gulf War happened, the first one in 1991. I was a professor and at that time now a single parent. I went to Russia on a UNESCO mission and drank contaminated water and came back to Canada very ill and ended up having to be off work for three months with bleeding ulcers. And at that time, I looked at my life as a yogi, and I thought, hmm, as a Christian and as a yogi, I now have two things. I know where square one is in the universe. That's where you sit down to speak to it. That's where you sit to meditate. That's square one in the universe. And somehow, the end of the whole thing will be when all of this creation, I don't know why it's here, goes back to God. And suddenly, that used to fill my heart. But suddenly, sick as I was, unable to move, and the world falling into war, I thought, I really don't have anything. Those are like two bookends. I know where the first square is in the universe, and I know where the last square is, but I have no idea how to get from here to there. Now, in all the mystical literature I've seen across all religions and all centuries, that moment is called the dark night of the soul. In the dark night of the soul, you really don't know what's going on, and that makes you humble, and that makes you receptive.
And it was in that condition that I turned Baha'u'llah because I had known a lot about the Baha'i faith. I had looked at it intellectually. But now I realized, wait a minute, there is more useful understanding of what the world is about in the Baha'i writings than I have found anywhere else. And that's when it became a very serious search for me. And I ended up, shortly after that, deciding that I really could only live effectively as a Baha'i. And due to some strange circumstances, I ended up very soon after working and serving at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa. So I had the chance then to learn much more accurately about what Baha'i teachings are. So I'm speaking with Elaine McCreary, educator and author of Our Seven Families. So Elaine, what motivated you to write this book or what inspired you to write this book called Our Seven Families? Well, again, it was circumstantial. As a professor on leave, I was serving at the Baha'i World Center when one of the representatives from the Baha'is of Sweden asked me to come there to put together a curriculum for Swedish summer school. It was around 1994, I think. It was the United Nations Year of the Family. So they asked me to come and do a week-long program on this topic, but they said, nobody will come because they hate this topic. And I, I said, well, wait a minute, why do they hate this topic? And then I got a whole lot of Swedish sociology about, they were very early, you know, to go into common law marriage, the civil status of single parent families and same sex relationships and everybody's in therapy over their family of origin. But I suspected that they liked the idea of a family of friendships. Then furthermore, they probably would recognize that there's a sort of interacting family in your daily life. The people at work, the people in your apartment block, the people on the bus, these same people you see every day. I mean, that's where we get all our television programs and sitcoms and soap operas and so on. And so I began to rattle off a few of these alternate conceptions of family, and they said, great, we knew you could do this. Please come and, and do this summer school. So for five months between the invitation and the time I, I actually facilitated the curriculum, I read 90 Baha'i publications. I flipped through them all, looking for clues as to what human relationships are supposed to be like. And I just followed instinct, and sort of a, a researcher's instinct that there's something here. And gradually I began to see that there's not one, two, or three, but I was able to find seven different sets of people that are not just a bunch. The difference between a bunch and a system is that in a system, those parts are interacting, but according to some organizing principle or laws or whatever, as in a solar system, can continue to exist because there's a balance between centrifugal and centripetal forces. Otherwise, we'd all just collapse into the sun or we'd all blow off into the universe. So I wanted to know what are those operating principles 
that people will be able to think about this. And the seven sets of people that I came up with were the global family because almost everybody's willing to acknowledge that the whole population of Earth, somehow, we can't avoid belonging to each other. It's more controversial to think about a national family, but everybody, a system, it's a system within your borders. I had a whole lot of trouble trying to name the intergenerational family because people have so much worrisome connotations to that intergenerational family. And yet there need to be people fulfilling a parent role, people fulfilling a grandparent role. And so what I began to find was that there are actually archetypal role descriptions. And maybe your genetic relatives can fulfill those, or maybe you have to go out and find yourself an uncle. Go find yourself a grandmother. But the role, the archetypal role, is defined very clearly in Baha'i sacred writings and Baha'i teachings. And I already mentioned the daily family, the people you run into on the job, where you shop, and so on. I already mentioned a family of friendships. There may be people that you knew in school or you knew in some city years ago. You've lost touch with them, and yet they were so important to you, so significant, that they still kind of hang there in the universe of your heart, and they are a friend to you for some indefinable reason. And then... So many people being in therapy, trying to sort out what's going on inside. I realized that there is such a thing as an interior family, which is the mirror image of everything you've experienced out there. Everybody you've ever been, you were a four-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 24-year-old, all those people are in there. Everybody you've ever met and interacted is in there. And in fact, everybody you've ever seen in a movie or read about in a book, all these different ways to be a human being, to be a sister or a brother or a spouse, it's all inside. And later in life, especially at the stage of integration, we're trying to get it all to make sense. And having found those six, I thought I'd really exhausted the possibilities. But then, as a person with a spiritual perception, I realized that we also have a connection to people we've never come across physically. That is, those who were in space-time before we got here, and those who will be in space-time after we're gone. Do we have an ethical or a moral relationship of rights and responsibilities with those people. And this is how the seven different sets gradually sort of congealed. And then in the book, you can see that a particular problem of human interaction was illustrated in each of these sets of people, these systems. And therefore, there's right behavior possible. If wrong behavior is possible, we can figure out what right behavior is. And this is how, through a very inductive process, I discovered what seemed to be some very clear images in Baha'i teachings. And because I was so recently entered into Baha'i culture, I had pretty much zero expectations. And I was surprised at every turn because 
what's in Baha'i teachings is not Christianity all over again. It's not Islam all over again. It has to contain within its wisdom everything that's gone before. So Confucius wrote a lot about human relations. But I was determined, because a lot of people read these things, that I would write a book that simply encapsulated what I had discovered in the Baha'i teachings, because they are the most recent and the least well-known among readers. So I'm speaking with Elaine McCreary, educator and author of Our Seven Families. So Elaine, could you just, for the sake of discussion, itemize the seven families? Right. So I did make mention of them, but it's easy to recapitulate what they are. A global family is the population of the planet. National family are the people living within the borders of your nation. What I call the essential family, some people try to call the intergenerational family, the extended family, the nuclear family, and I found none of those labels worked for what I was trying to express. So I ended up calling it the essential family because we must be able to relate backwards and forwards in the flow of the generations. Daily family, the family of friendships, an interior family, and then these people who are out of our space-time that I called the eternal family. From what I understand, it's these seven different worlds that we all live in. Indeed, you can't get out of them. The only one you can possibly get out of, I mean, because they're all simply given. You are crossing through all these worlds. And the reason I call it a world is, if you think about science fiction or or historical fiction or whatever, how do they define a world? It will have architecture, technology, suitable to the time. It will have cultural expectations and so on. It has resources and it has problems. It has challenges. So what I liked was that each of these sets of people, these systems are kind of operating with different resources and different problems. And that each human being actually lives at the intersect of these seven worlds because at one moment you're thinking about your nation at another you're thinking about the globe at another you're thinking about the immediate set of people you're living with and so on it was clear that it's very hard to sort all this out and that people are confused because a solution that seems to work in one environment doesn't seem to work in another so after i had taught this in courses and workshops and summer schools and I'd have people come up to me and say, you know, it's like having x-ray vision. Now I look around and I see things I didn't used to see. So I'm speaking with Elaine McCreary, educator and author of Our Seven Families. Now, there's another statement made about the book that says there's an established link between spiritual activities and social transformation. Now, how does that relate with these seven different worlds that we live in? When we look at a concrete action, we can sort of dial our perception depth from the most physical aspects of that action. Let's say it's an incident that happens on the street. Behind that, we can dial to the layer of sort of ethical reality. 
what makes this a right action or a wrong action? Even from this ethical analysis, you can dial to the spiritual reality. Because I saw a constitutional expert one time say, the essence of all human rights, as we refer to political human rights, United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, those human rights are actually standing not on philosophic principles, but on spiritual principles, because the fundamental spiritual principle is each human being as an entity is sacred. Each human being has been endowed by coming into existence. It's been endowed with intelligence and capacity and talents and potential. What would be ideal is that each of these human beings get a chance to flower and bring forth their talents into the world not just so that they can be a consumer and eat and buy and collect and gather. No, we're not here to be consumers. We're here to be gardeners and to contribute to the world around us so that we leave the world a better place than when we arrived. This is one of those things that's taught in kindergarten. Every time you come to a little workstation, make sure that it's tidier and nicer and better for the person who comes behind you than it was when you got there. So in order to find the greatest leverage to decide what is the right thing to do, you have to get back behind that ethical choice to sort of spiritual first principles. I didn't create that other human being. Something, something is the origin of that other human being. My job is to contribute to the welfare of that other human being in whatever measure is appropriate so that they can then bring forth the talents that were put to them. There's like a direct line of action. You know, there are two different ways to practice the spiritual life, basically. One is to use your spiritual practice to get yourself out of this world. I'm going to meditate myself right out the skylight. So I won't be bothered by this world anymore. But at very best, suppose you could do that. That only protects one soul. The other way of lining this up is I'm going to use that meditative practice to draw from an infinite supply and pull that intelligence, that wisdom, that grace, that spirit. I'm going to pull that power into the world and let it flow through me so that it can have a positive effect on the world around me. We all have a circle of influence, larger or smaller, but none of us is here without having some impact on the people around us. I think one of the things that characterizes the Baha'i culture, Baha'i teachings, the way Baha'i people live, the way Baha'i communities are organized, is that we feel the way to worship God is not through idle prayers, but through action. Let my actions be a prayer to show my worship for thee. You know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a Catholic nun, she said that every time she washed the body of a street 
person who was too ill to wash themselves. She felt she was washing the body of Christ. This is the spiritual to material relationship that Baha'is see. We bring our worship of God into action in the world. And as my Hindu yogic training taught me, we become a channel for this inflow of spiritual power to the extent that we can purify the ego stuff (laughs) from inside our thinking and our feeling. And the yogis refer to this as becoming a hollow reed. May I be a hollow reed through which thy love may flow unto others. So the Baha'i teachings and Baha'i way of life are very much lined up with these other aspects of our spiritual history and development. So for me, I found a very direct connection with both a a Roman Catholic explanation of service and a Hindu explanation of service. I think this puts together what your question was asking about the spiritual reality and material action. So I'm speaking with Elaine McCreary, educator and author of Our Seven Families. Elaine, do you have a excerpt from the book you'd like to share with us? Oh, right. So at the end of the first chapter, the introduction, it's called Interwoven Social Worlds, and it introduces to the reader what those populations are, what the principal problem in each system is, and what the sort of ethical and spiritual response to that is to help each system unify, become integrated, become more productive, more synergistic. And This is just a concluding section from that chapter called Interwoven Social Worlds. What the sacred writings open for us is a penetrating vision of human social life dramatically more complex than we had previously acknowledged. Seven human systems inhabiting distinct realms or worlds of experience each with an identity, purpose, integrity of its own, each family potentially able to nurture its many members, each poignantly in need of assistance to reach its unity. Principles embedded in the sacred writings address our role in assisting each family to achieve its own form of harmony and unity and to fulfill its unique purpose in human affairs. Individually, we each live and grow like trees planted in the rich and varied soil of human social life. And in those settings, our lives are destined to mature and bring forth the qualities of service that were always latent within us. We know it is our destiny to serve humanity in all its forms and families because Baha'u'llah has written, Ye are the trees of my garden. Ye must give forth goodly and wondrous fruits that ye yourselves and others may profit therefrom. In learning to serve these families, to play our part in helping each of these social systems increase its integration, improve its degree of unity, and enrich its synergy, we will find all the satisfaction we have been seeking. We will fulfill the profound purpose for which we were created, and live each day fully to the end, ever expanding and enriching our sense of belonging. 
So I'm speaking with Elaine McCreary, educator and author of Our Seven Families, and she just read an excerpt from the uh, introduction of the book. Elaine, do you have a second excerpt you'd like to share? Let me just see. At the close of the book, after reflections on everything we've learned before, there are a few paragraphs that just summarize what it's about. We, the peoples of the world, are the bearers of unlimited human potential to manifest spiritual dynamics in family-like relations all over the world. Despite evidence to the contrary, we are, in fact, learning to conduct ourselves in those various levels of family-like human systems and to move our global culture forward toward justice and reciprocity, human rights, and world peace. The Universal House of Justice, the elected body that guides and guards and governs the multitude of Baha'is who've turned to it from every imaginable corner of the planet, provides some encouraging reflections on the prospects for our common future. It based its observations on the experiences of Baha'i communities throughout the globe and addressed its reflections in an open letter to the peoples of the world. Together with the opposing tendency to warfare and self-aggrandizement against which it ceaselessly struggles, the drive towards world unity is one of the dominant pervasive features of life on the planet during the closing years of the 20th century. That's when this letter was written. It then talks about the diversity around the globe of Baha'i communities and how these communities have managed to, not diversity between, but within each Baha'i community, that they've managed to model peaceful integration in community life. So the House of Justice writes regarding this Baha'i world community, its existence is yet another convincing proof of the practicality of its founder's vision of a united world, evidence that humanity can live as one global society equal to whatever challenges its coming of age may entail. If the Baha'i experience can contribute in whatever measure to reinforcing hope in the unity of the human race, we're happy to offer it as a model for study. And having shared that piece from the Universal House of Justice, I then draw my own conclusion. From the most sublime visions of the future of humanity to the most practical requirements of our life today, our unity as one people and one planet becomes abundantly clear through contemplating even the few extracts from Baha'i teachings presented in this small volume. Understand this. No one of us is alone, free-floating or isolated. We are inextricably intertwined with each other through at least these seven families in a meaningful life drama. In each family, we have an important role to play to help it achieve its cohesion and synergy. It is in service to these sacred human families that we will directly experience the fulfillment of our life's purpose and the satisfaction of our ancient hunger to belong. One of my daughters works in the field of post-conflict educational reconstruction. So many of the wars that we still have 
happening today are not so much between countries as within countries, as nations try to figure themselves out as multi-ethnic, sometimes multi-language cultures. She has helped me to think about how we live as human beings. Are we going to be sort of passive receivers of what's going on in the world? We can't avoid the world. Part of the book explains that we're connected with it in so many ways. We can't be a non-player. What we can be is passive, or we can become an active, positive agent in the world in different ways. From her work, I've learned about the courage of people in very difficult circumstances standing up for what is right. And I think what comes out of this book for people who read it is that not only do you get to click through different ways of seeing the people of the world, but it also is very empowering because it provides clues as to how each of us can become a positive source, positive agent in relation to all these different contexts we find ourselves in. And that's very satisfying. It's not for us to see the results. It's not for us to make the world come right. You know, as children, we would say things like, I want to save the world from itself. There's no such thing. What we can do is serve the world in the condition we find it. And I think this book really seems to help people do that. Thank you so much. This was very inspiring. Thank you so much for bringing my attention to this. My pleasure. Thank you, Warren. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Elaine McCreary, author of the book, Our Seven Families, Expanding and Enriching Our Sense of Belonging. I'll post a link to her book on the website of Bahaiperspective.com, where you can also find this interview and other interviews. You can find this interview also on my YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
guards his name, guards his name. Though he suffered many hardships, this mighty bronze stood loyal and firm the bond between them was never broken words of love need not be spoken like drawn to a flame this loyal moth guards his name Guards his
came into this world on the king of days not a moment too soon all the spirit of faith contained in him like a vessel he encompassed the world the ark on the water through storm seas he sails on
she votes for change But nothing grows from conflict Except the things we hate about ourselves No, they can't pass a law to end indifference No human rights can break us from our shell Cause true freedom is in submission to his commandments And say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more mysterious his lips have disappeared from acting serious And watching all his numbers rise and fall He walks on by me singing in the subway And he plugs his ears, won't listen to me calling out that True freedom is in submission to his commandments We say, who needs them? But we're all wishing for something more Then you will 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.